You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Today is the last Sunday, uh, the final Sunday in our series called God and Politics. And today we're going to talk about the concept of political exile. Political exile. Um, I, I really appreciated the comments that Jared made as we were singing just recognizing that we arrive today with uh, differing viewpoints, uh, differing mindsets, perhaps differing emotional responses to what we saw and are seeing uh, politically in our country. And, uh, but, the, but the truth is that regardless of whether you come excited today or discouraged today or angry or hopeful or whatever the condition of your mindset, we all come together as one people of God and we look to Jesus Christ as our Savior. And I wanted to make sure and announce my topic last week before the election. I said that, that I would be talking about living in exile because I didn't want anyone to suspect that politically I, I view exile as life uh, under uh, Trump or life under Biden, uh, that I didn't view uh, either of those uh, in particular as exile, uh, that is not my intent. I wasn't, uh, you know, this is no response to the election. This is, was planned out before the election started, which is why, before we had the election, which is why I needed to, to communicate last week what I would be talking about. But I wanted to look today at God's word about the enduring truth, uh, really, that is unchanging, uh, regardless of who holds any office at any level in our country. What we're looking at today is an unchanging truth about who rules and about what our role is as the church in the world. So this is 1 Peter verses 1 and 2. This is God's word to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God bless his word as we look at it this morning. Last month, a court in Ireland ruled that bread used by Subway to make its sandwiches is not real bread. <laughs> this all came about because Subway appealed that they were being taxed with the VAT tax, which stands for the value-added tax. And, and Subway made a reasonable argument that the value-added tax in Ireland was only on, uh, it, it was not to be, rather, on foods that were staple foods. So you did not tax 
You do not tax bread, tea, coffee, milk, and eggs. Uh, But the value-added tax was only for uh, what they call more discretionary indulgences. And discretionary indulgences are things like ice cream, chips, or pastries. Well, the issue was the makeup of Subway bread. To qualify as a staple food and to avoid the tax in Ireland, uh, bread, uh, the amount of sugar in bread... Uh, can only uh, be 2% or less of the weight of the flour. 2% or less of the weight of the flour. Subway bread had five times the legal amount of sugar to qualify as bread. And so it was taxed like a confectionery. Subway's comment in the article I read was just fabulous. Their quote was, Subway's bread is, of course, bread. That that clears it up for anybody who's wondering. But the government's contention was really simple. I mean, their contention was this, that it may look like bread, but it lacks the substance of true bread. Their contention was simple. It was, it's tasty, but it's artificial. It's tasty, but it's artificial. This story hits home when we think about the church in America and our hope for changing society. Many Christians and churches have invested their hope in politics as a means to change our nation. And politicians and their parties, both right and left, are more than willing to offer hope to us all. They will, after all, right all wrongs. They will bring justice to all. They will make all things new. And just like Subway bread, those exaggerated hopes lack substance. They are tasty, especially during election season. They are tasty, but they are artificial. The Christian hope isn't political, It's eternal. It isn't found in a political party. It is found in the kingdom of God. It isn't found in a candidate. It is found in the king who rules over all. And I really think in this closing message, as we've talked, uh, this is the fourth message on politics, as we've talked about it, I really wanted to emphasize that I think the church in America needs to recapture our mission And we will only do that when we once again restore our true identity. And the Bible gives us our identity in multiple places. And it gives us our identity with great clarity in the passage that we just read. God's people are always people in exile. And as people in exile, we are called to change the world from the margins. Not from a seat of power, but from the margins. As the people of God, we always function as outsiders. Jesus prepared his people for this. And uh, he, he said that we are, to, you know, obviously, we're to be in the world, but not of it. They persecuted me. You are not above your teacher. The church is compromised when it seeks insider power 
through politics because we are called to bring change as outsiders in the world. And the book of 1 Peter, and today's text in particular, really clarifies what our relationship is to be to the surrounding world, the culture, the society around us. And he summarizes it in verse 1 with these words. To those who are, this is the phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, that may not be a catchy, that may not have a real hook to you in terms of what our identity is, but I want to break down each of those words because we'll see that those are key. They're throughout the, the book of First Peter, but they're really throughout the Bible as defining characteristics of our identity. We are elect, we'll look at that first, we are exiles, and we are of the dispersion, perhaps the most unfamiliar phrase in the passage. So number one, we are elect. The people of God are the elect. Some, some passages, I mean, some translations use the word chosen here. We are chosen. The New Living Translation says, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, etc., so it means to, to be chosen or to be selected or to be elect. And when God communicates in the Bible to his people that they are chosen, it is always to bring comfort. It is to remind us that, that God has set his affection on us, that God has loved us. It, it's so often, what's a tragedy is so often the doctrine of election, when looked at in the scripture, just becomes some point of arguing or some doctrine that divides to decide which team are you on, which tribe are you in. But the reality in, in out, throughout the Scripture is that the doctrine of election is presented for our comfort, for our encouragement. And he says something else in verse 2. He says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And when the Bible talks about foreknowledge and our relationship to God and our election, it doesn't mean that God knows facts ahead of time, that he foreknows facts. It means that God foreknows people. That's what he's talking about here, that, that God knows us, that God chooses us, elect, chosen, that he does that before time. And so Peter wants the readers to immediately, from the first designation, after he says, this is Peter, the next thing he says is, you're elect. Hi, I'm Peter, you're elect. That's the order of the letter, which is really profound because he wants the people from the beginning to stand back and say to God, you know me. You love us. You chose us before time began. It should take our breath away that we step back from the beginning and say, we are the most privileged people on all the planet to be sitting under the, God's presence among his people, listening to his word, it doesn't get any more privileged than this. That the grace of God has awakened us because of his love for us. It doesn't just say that we're elect or that God has foreknowledge of us. It says it's the work of God the Father, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. As we read through the book of 1 Peter, we see that the Christians here were being persecuted. They were having a difficult time. These Christians were likely experiencing social rejection, 
rejection from their families, hindrances because of their faith, hindrances at their work, slander about their character, mocking of their faith, religious rejection because they didn't participate in the culture's emperor worship. They likely may have been experiencing violence or destruction of their property as well. They probably aren't being killed at this point. That happens a little bit later in the history of the church. But they are experiencing resistance and rejection. And what Peter wants them to know from the beginning is you have a father in heaven who knew this before time began, and he chose you to be his own, to be his children, so that you would represent him as light in a dark world as those chosen by God, chosen by their father, foreknown by the father. He wants them to live with the identity as adopted sons and daughters. He's saying to them, you are included, knowing the father, you are included in the father's eternal family. Listen, church, we need to wear that identity as well that the church is the people of God whom he has set his love and affection on, whom he has saved for his own glory. And that should never puff us up or cause us to look down on anyone else. That brings us to our knees to say, oh God, you are glorious. For I was never looking for you, but you came looking for me and gave me new life. So what's the identity of the church here? They are the loved, chosen people of God. Secondly, they are exiles. The elect, exiles. The word exile is also translated foreigner or alien. Alien, not like UFO, but like alien from another country. Alien. The NASB translates it to those who reside as aliens. I mean, so here's the big idea. He's saying, church, this is who you are. You are like someone who isn't a citizen in the land in which they reside. This is what you're like. You are like someone that does not have citizenship in your country. You're you're a foreigner who doesn't enjoy the rights and privileges of a citizen, a foreigner, an exile, And even more, you're someone that is, well, viewed suspiciously, for you don't embrace all the customs or the values of the society in which you reside, or at least you shouldn't. The theme of exile is significant in the Bible. Now, oftentimes we only think of the exile as something applied to Israel in the Old Testament, but he's saying here that the church is the exilic people, the church is lives in exile. In the Old Testament, the exile was a spoke of the time when Israel was invaded and the people of God were carted off to Babylon. We studied that in the spring at the beginning of the pandemic. If you can remember that back that far, we studied the book of Daniel and that was about life in exile. So here he's saying that is the life of the church. And, and when Israel was taken to Babylon, they lived among foreign idolatries, foreign language, foreign customs. They were out of place, in a sense. And Peter is saying here to them, you know what, just like the Old Testament when Israel lived in Babylon, that's you. 
That's exactly your reality. Peter uses the analogy of exile, and he's going to do it throughout the book, but he uses the analogy of exile to describe the church's reality. And here's the amazing thing. His readers don't live in a foreign land. They're like actually from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's where they live. But what he's saying is, you are a foreigner in your own land because of faith in Christ. Because you identify with Christ and his church, you are spiritual foreigners. You are exiles, exiles in your own homeland because you belong to another kingdom. Your primary, primary, primary identity is not person of Pontus or citizen of Galatia or a Galatian. It's not person in the Roman Empire, a Roman citizen. This, this is not your primary designation. You are a part of another kingdom, and so that means you live as a foreigner on the soil where you are today. He, he fleshes this out farther in the next chapter. Chapter 2 If you look at chapter 2, verse 9, this is what he's saying. He's using language of Israel to apply to the church. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you, here it is, as sojourners and exiles. You are passing through, you live in a foreign land. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." So he's saying, you're in a foreign land. You're, you're, home, you're, you're a holy nation. That is, God is your king, and that's true for us as well. That's true for us. We forget this. When we read about God's land and God's people and exile, what happens in our culture is people often read America as uh, Jerusalem or as Israel. America is like every nation that has ever existed in this way. It's all Babylon. There's one kingdom of God. Now I'm getting political. It's one kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God, as grateful as I am for our nation, I love our nation, but it is not the kingdom of God. It is Babylon, and we, every nation is Babylon. There is the people of God, and there is the world. You are in Christ, or you are not in Christ. There is the kingdom of God, and all other kingdoms. There's nothing in between. It's a very black and white issue, biblically. And so we live in Babylon, and we are citizens of heaven, we are people of the kingdom, and we are to live as exiles, we're going to see what this means, but we are to live as exiles in our country. It's very important that we have that identity, or it messes with our politics, it messes with our ideas, it messes with our goals, it messes with our mission, if we don't have this as clear in our understanding. We are a holy nation The people of God is what he says. That's the holy nation. 
So we are 2,000 years removed from these readers, but he would say the same thing to us. You are sojourners. You are exiles. So abstain, verse 11, from the passions of the flesh that war against your soul. He's saying you are, you are different than your culture, so live differently. You live, do you ever think about this? You live in a host culture. So it's great to love your host culture, to respect your host culture, but you are to live differently as an exile than your host culture and you ultimately won't fit. And that's good because he says here, when you avoid the passions of the culture, people can see you and they will glorify your God in the day of his visitation. That is, they will see something distinct, something different about you and want to know your God. Our identity is the exact same as the identity of the early church. We have historically lived in an environment that is more friendly to our faith than, the, uh, than they did in Rome. That's to be, at this stage, that's to be sure. But we still live with the reality that there's a clear distinction between God's kingdom and the world, between believing society and unbelieving. And the distinctions have always been there. And some would argue that they are becoming more and more clear in our country, in our world, that the distinctions are becoming more and more clear, but they have always really been there. And so if you feel like an outsider in your own culture, well, that is the way it's supposed to be for a follower of Jesus. In her commentary on 1 Peter, Karen Jobes says the following, 1 Peter presents the Christian community as a colony in a strange land, an island of one culture in the midst of another. The new birth that gives Christians a new identity and a new citizenship in the kingdom of God makes us, in whatever culture we happen to live, visiting foreigners and resident aliens there. We were visiting foreigners and resident aliens before the election, after the election, and until and beyond the next election. So what does this have to do with politics? Well, as kingdom people who follow Jesus, we need to realize that we will never find a perfect political fit. A perfect political fit. The church should always be a square peg in the round hole of partisan politics. We're just not going to fit ideologically perfectly. It doesn't mean that we don't participate. We talked about that for a couple weeks. We must participate. We're called to participate because politics is about people and we love our neighbor through participation in our political system. That is a stewardship and a privilege from God. So yes, we must participate, but we don't ultimately assimilate because our allegiance is to another king and another kingdom whose values will never map on to any secular political platform. The values of the kingdom will never match any political platform perfectly. I've heard a number of Christians say in this most recent election season that they feel politically homeless. And I thought, that's probably a good thing. It's fine to, to uh, obviously we vote. It's fine to vote for a party. It's fine to vote with a party. It's fine to, to be a part of a party. It's fine to bo- volunteer with your political 
party. But that's different than saying, this is my home. God has designed us to change the world in a different way. We participate politically for the love of neighbor, but our ultimate change in society happens as we live faithfully, regular lives, day in, day out, in our families, in our neighborhoods, on, in the workplace, living a faithful God, to a faithful life before God that points people to a different king and a different kingdom. And that kind of life that brings real change to a culture, well, that is sort of expressed by the last phrase. We are elect, we are exiles, we are of the dispersion. That is, our mission as elect exiles plays out in the daily life of the dispersion. Now, the provinces uh, that he speaks to here, he calls them the dispersion, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. These are, these are provinces that would be in the area that is now known as the country of Turkey. But this word that he uses, dispersion, it's also, uh, sometimes you'll see it, the diaspora. It's a technical term that was used to describe Jews outside their homeland. So when Jews lived outside of Israel, they were referred to as the dispersion, the diaspora. And Peter uses that language to describe the church. Again, he's saying this every way possible. You are scattered away from your homeland. You live in Pont. You were born in Pontus. You were raised in Pontus. You graduated from Pontus High School, class of... 52 AD, okay? So you're Pontus through and through, but you're in the dispersion. Why? Because your homeland's somewhere else. This is what they called when the people of God were outside of Jerusalem. You're the diaspora. The church is always the diaspora because our true home is heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. Philippians 3 says we are, that heaven is our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And now we are sojourning. First uh, Peter 2, verse 11, we are sojourning, passing through as exiles in the land where we live. So he hammers the exile point again by saying, you live in a place separated from home. Separated from home. Now, living in the dispersion away from home presents two dangers. One danger is that the church would give in to isolation from its culture, to live as an exile, but to just shut everyone out and live in a little enclave separate from the host culture, isolation from the culture. That's one ditch. The other ditch would be assimilation to the culture, so that the people of God, you're in Babylon and you look, talk, act, smell, just like Babylon. That's assimilation. Both of those are dangers for the people of God. To live in the dispersion means we're separated from our homeland in another land, but we're not to isolate from that land and we're not to assimilate to that land. We mustn't assimilate so that we are indistinguishable from our uh, culture. We, we, we're to keep a distinction from our culture. Peter says that we are not only elect, but in verse 2, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. 
He's saying the reason you are elect, the reason you are chosen, the reason you are away from your homeland as an exile in the dispersion is so that you can live a life obedient to Jesus Christ, which means you will always be distinguishable from the culture. You can't fully assimilate into all of its mindset, its worldview, its practices. You can't do that. You can't fully embrace all of its political, any political point of view uh, apart from the kingdom as if it is equal to the values of the kingdom. You can't fully assimilate because you are called to obey Christ. We live distinct lives to draw others to our king. And the goal is that when they see our lives, it begins to lead them to ask questions about our lives. If you flip over to chapter 3 in 1 Peter, he says something very interesting. He says in verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He's talking about good works. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, that's persecution, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now listen to this verse, 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect." He's saying that when you do good and you live with a heart set apart as holy to Christ, you will be distinguished. And you know what happens when you're distinguished? Someone's going to say, what's up with your hope? Explain to me the hope that you have. And when they do, you're to respond with gentleness, kindness, and respect. You don't just unload and give them the answer. It's gentleness and respect. But he's presuming that you would live a life different enough that people would say, where do you get that hope? I looked someone on social media this week and saw, you know, everybody gets something of a pass. Not really, but uh, it's emotional time. So people say stuff that maybe they later and erase or, you know, take it off or whatever. It's, it's pretty, pretty amped up. But I saw a number of Christians on social media, no one in our church, If you said this, I'm not thinking about you, okay, because I didn't see anybody in our church said this. But I saw people giving lines of utter despair at the election results, that life is over as we know it, that there is utter destruction on every aspect of our culture. Christians saying this, It was so despairing, I couldn't imagine any unbeliever tapping them on the shoulder and saying, wow, can you tell me about the hope that you have that is different than the culture? I need that hope. They would look and say, that's exactly what I feel if I have the same political view as you. That's exactly how I feel if we have the same partisan view. That's what they would say. I can get that anywhere. Just join your party or join the other party. I can get that in the world. What I can't get is that if my guy did get elected, I don't amp up all my hope about that. I say, okay, new president, Jesus is king. If my guy lost, I don't say end of the world. I say, I guess there's a change in administration. Jesus is king. Not that it doesn't matter, but that it doesn't ultimately matter. 
We want to have a hope in Christ that is so strong as an exile in our host culture that someone would look and say, where did you get that? How can I have that? What's different about you? Ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us. And when we sell out for a political hope, when we are scarfing down Subway bread, we have nothing to offer anybody. But when we are eating the true bread of life, not in my notes, hadn't planned that amazing thought, but when we are eating the true bread of life, then we have something to offer to others. We are on the margins, and that's beautiful. We're on the margins of the left. We're on the margins of the right. We're on the margins of America. We're on the margins of whatever country you're from. And that's beautiful because that's where God brings change. I mean, Jesus, after all, was on the margins. Tim Chester writes the following, from the margins we point to God's coming world. We offer an alternative lifestyle, alternative values and relationships, a community that proves incredibly attractive. First Peter equips us to go back into the world, into our classrooms, boardrooms, factories, playgrounds, and changing rooms as men and women who, like our Savior before us, are those who are marginal yet world-changing. We clamor for a political seat at the table. Again, depending on what kind of church you are, what kind of Christian doctrine you hold, we clamor for a seat at the table right or left, Democrat or Republican. And wow, what a sellout when our call is neither. It's the kingdom of God where through our daily lives, living an attractive life of hope in the gospel, someone might dare someday tap us on the shoulder and say, what do you have? Because it's different. We dare not assimilate where we have no differences than the world. But we dare not isolate either. See, no one's going to ask us, where's the hope, if they don't know us. No one's going to ask us, what's your hope, if they haven't seen us in a hopeless situation sustained by a power beyond this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We mustn't isolate. When Israel was in exile in Babylon... God gave them some direction through the prophet Jeremiah. And it was, don't isolate. You are there. Uh, He didn't say this, but you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world for Babylon. So this is how he said you should act. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. So we don't assimilate, but neither do we isolate. This is what the text says. It says, let me find it here. He says 29, 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Live a fruitful life. Genesis 1, we're created to, to multiply, to take dominion is what the scripture says, and to live a life, to make a difference, to live for the good of our city. That's one of the main reasons we, we participate politically, because we're committed to the good of the city. We're committed to the good 
good of Babylon because as the city or as our country prospers, so does the church. And not just materially prospers, but as we prosper in freedom and as we prosper in a just society and as we prosper in equality and various things like that. As, as the culture prospers, so do we. So we participate politically for that reason, but it's not our ultimate hope. We're called to engage the culture, Jeremiah 29, but at the same time remember that we are exiles, so we will never become fully at home in any earthly culture. And the beauty of this is that our power of influence, our power to bring change is found in our being distinct from the culture while not isolated from the culture. It's a road, isn't it? Parents, it's a road to raise our children, not to isolate, but not to assimilate. It's a road, it's tough to stay on that road in your job, not to isolate, not to assimilate. In your neighborhood, it's tough to engage without and lose our distinction in all ways, relationship. But this is the calling. This is our calling before God, and it has significant political ramifications. We are to be involved politically, but we do not put our hope in politics because we're of another kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus said to Pilate. Real quickly, let's apply this in a matter of moments. How do we apply this? I would say, number one, remember that you are elect. As a believer, you are chosen son and daughter. Your future, our future as the church, it is secure from eternity past to eternity future. And nothing can separate us from his love. We take comfort in that and we remember that whenever there is suffering, whenever there is resistance for our faith, that God reminds us of his election of us. And that's how he starts this letter. Number two, remember that you are in exile hey, church, let's don't be shocked when we're marginalized as a believer. Let's don't be shocked like, wow, where's that coming from? Jesus told us that. Jesus warned us of that. Biblical Christianity will never be culturally celebrated. Can we just settle this right now? That it will never be popular to say Jesus is the only way in a pluralistic society. That's just not going to be a popular statement. You can't embrace the Bible's sexual ethics and have the world applaud you. It's just not going to happen. Let's just celebrate those things right now, that we are linked to a different kingdom and we live as light in the darkness. You won't find a perfect political fit, so be faithful in politics, but do not make it your God. Crush the idol and serve the king. Let's settle that for ourselves as well. Listen, the reason we'll never be a perfect political fit because the values of the kingdom, which are the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, that will never be a political platform in this country. There will never be the kingdom party and which their, their platform is Matthew 5 through 7. That's not happening, so let's experience the distinction, let's celebrate it, and let's put our hope that, our, that life change comes as we are salt and light in our culture, in our everyday lives, being faithful as citizens, which includes politics, as, uh, as, as workers, as family members, as those who walk out our, our hobbies and our recreational time and our relationships in the city God has called us to. That is an, that is an eternal influence 
on people's lives. That's what God's called us to. And lastly, I would say this. This is in the book, but not quite as much in the text I just read. And that's remember that you're part of a family. No one's called to live in exile alone. All of Israel, or the majority of people, were in exile. He's talking plural. You are elect exiles. Plural. You're not the exile out there. You are exiles together, and no one exiles well alone. You need a family. And I have a grave concern about the fracturing of the church. I'm not just talking about Grace Church. I'm talking about Evangelical Church. There is a fracturing. 2020 has been the year of fracturing of the church. And the whole New Testament is about how the church can come together around the gospel to be salt and light. A city set on a hill, which is the church, not our country, though it's been used by politicians, Reagan and others. We're the city set on a hill. That's the church is the city set on a hill, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And we need one another. This, I believe this is a time to come around the gospel and realize we are in exile. So stop nitpicking small little details about how this person differs politically from me. This person differs on this secondary, tertiary, fourth level uh, uh, doctrine, which is disputable. And we can live through together in unity and take different choices on this thing or that thing. We're called to build an alternative society that models life under the king of kings, and it's not happening when we fracture from one another for, for worthless causes. It's a time to sojourn together, to exile together, and to remember that as the people of God, our power to change the world is in the unity we enjoy together. John 17, Jesus prays, may they be one, meaning us, may they be the one, be one so the world will know that you sent me. For the world to stand up and take notice, the church has to center around the gospel of Jesus Christ and take our other differences and say, that's not primary, brother. That's not primary, sister. Let's link arms in exile and let's bring the kingdom Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.